Today on the Ancestral Findings Podcast, the 1820 U.S. Federal Census is the last one to not use pre-printed forms. Because enumerators often drew their own columns, it can sometimes be challenging to interpret the results of this census. However, the effort is worth it for genealogists. Here's what you need to know about the 1820 U.S. Federal Census. The 1820 U.S. Federal Census was the fourth one the U.S. government conducted. It included populations from six states that were not yet states in the previous census. These new states were Louisiana, Mississippi, Illinois, Alabama, Indiana, and Maine. Enumeration of this census began on August 7, 1820. Like the three censuses prior to it, there have been some significant record losses over the decades with this census. The 1820 U.S. Federal Census is currently missing records for New Jersey, as well as the territories of Arkansas and Missouri. The 1820 U.S. Federal Census determined the population of the United States at this time to be about 9.5 million people. Of these, about a million and a half were slaves. The center of population of the United States was in Hardy County, Virginia, which is now West Virginia. This particular U.S. federal census was the first one to record a state as having a population of more than a million people. In fact, there were two states with a million-plus population in this census, New York and Pennsylvania. This census was also the first to record a U.S. city with a population of more than 100,000 in this case, New York City. Baltimore was recorded as the second most populous U.S. city in this census, its first time achieving this position. The Act of Congress that authorized the 1820 U.S. Federal Census was enacted on March 14, 1820. This act required the new census to be more detailed in its population-related questions than in previous censuses. It was also the first one to require enumerators to ask if respondents were engaged in manufacturing, commerce, or agriculture. Beginning on the first Monday of August in 1820, the census was authorized with a six-month enumeration time. However, this time ended up being extended by another seven months to September 1st, 1821. Assistant U.S. Marshals were required, as with previous censuses, to visit every house that had someone living in it, or, barring that, the head of every family with their designated enumeration districts. There were assistants to the marshals in each district. The job of these assistants was to collect data in the district related to manufacturing, and then send it to the marshals who supervised their districts. The marshals then sent this information to the Secretary of State, along with the population returns for their district. The manufacturing data was intended to be compiled into a nationwide manufacturing report. However, the results were not summarized in each district, which meant the information that was aggregated and released to the government was based on incomplete returns. This is blamed on the same factor that caused the same issue in the previous 1810 census, poor training of enumerators. 
At the time of the 1820 census, the art of taking a census was not yet perfected. Prior to 1830, for example, there were no pre-printed forms for the enumerators to use. This meant many of the enumerators drew their own. This meant that some of the pages in the 1820 U.S. federal census do not have headings, column totals, line tallies, or anything else that would make them make sense in context with other census pages. The absence of pre-printed forms in the 1820 and earlier censuses makes the enumeration of many towns to be quite idiosyncratic, and down to the individual style of each enumerator. This does not mean this census and earlier ones are less reliable with their information than later ones. However, it does mean that interpreting the results may take more work on the part of the researcher. Results on each page on this census need to be examined closely and compared to results from the same region from other censuses in order to extract truly useful information from it. The questions that were asked on the 1820 U.S. Federal Census include the name of the head of the household, the number of free white males in a household under the age of 10, the number of free white males in a household aged 10 to 16, the number of free white males in a household aged 16 to 26, the number of free white males in a household aged 26 to 45. The number of free white males in a household aged 45 and up. The number of free white females in a household in the same age groups as the free white males. The number of unnaturalized foreigners in a household. The number of people in a household engaged in agriculture, commerce, and or manufacturing. The number of male slaves in a household in the same age groups as white men. The number of female slaves in a household in the same age groups as white women. The number of free African-American men in a household in the same age groups as white men. The number of free African-American women in a household in the same age groups as white women. The number of all other people not otherwise categorized in a household, except Native Americans who were not taxed. Some of the columns on this census were for special counts, which were not supposed to be included in the aggregate total of the published information. Including information from these special columns in the aggregate total would have made some people be counted twice, such as the column for free white men between the ages of 16 and 18, which was a special column. It was a special column because the men in this column were supposed to be tabulated in the ages 16 to under 26 column as well. The columns for unnaturalized foreigners, people engaged in agriculture, people engaged in commerce, and people engaged in manufacturing were also special columns. The census enumerators were also given instructions to count each individual person in only one of the three available occupation columns. So, if someone was engaged in agriculture, commerce, and manufacturing, the census enumerator could only choose one and had to decide, based on the information given by the individual, which occupation was the primary one. You can get all the genealogical charts and forms that I've talked about. Look for the link in the description box.
Thanks for joining me today on the Ancestral Findings Podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on YouTube and iTunes. Also, check out ancestralfindings.com for free genealogy lookups, ebooks, and weekly giveaways. Happy searching! Happy searching!